0: Yo, this is Hal in Philly, and welcome to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors. So tell me, Hal, you doing? Today my guest is George Binnell. He's a founding member of the Strawberry Alarm Clock, best known for their psychedelic hit song, Incense and Peppermints. George writes songs, plays bass, rhythm, guitars, and vocals, and he has a near photographic memory, so he's full of fascinating details and stories about the Strawberry Alarm Clock. This is kind of a long interview, so I won't do a long-winded intro. You can hear me go on and on anytime, and besides, I know you're here for some Tales Tales
1: of the Road Warriors!
0: I must apologize for the audio quality. It's not as great as I would have liked. So, to help you out, I included the names of the band members, past and present, talking points, and below the talking points, a full transcript of the conversation below. And now, a conversation with me, Hal in Philly, and George Bennell of the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Now, I got to be honest with you. I remember Incense and Peppermints and Birdman of Alcatraz, which was the B-side, which I understand yeah. was supposed to be the A-side. Uh, yeah. And admittedly you know uh, who was it tom rush somebody said uh, if you remember the 60s you weren't there and, uh, yeah and i kind of fall into that trap i was drinking a lot with my friends or doing acid you know i tried all the stuff <laughs> back in the day yeah and i didn't really get a real good gauge about what the Strawberry Alarm Clock was all about back then. But in retrospect, I'm looking at the whole psychedelic scene and the music business was changing and, and then it w- went from like the British invasion and then bubble gum came in and then you came out just when groups like the Lemon Pipers and, uh, uh, and other groups. But, but when I listen to your songs, you don't sound Bubblegum at all. But when no, I was I growing know, up...
1: I kind of got lumped into that.
0: <laughs> right. And you guys are like pure diehard Good musicians. Your your vocals are as good as Beach Boys or Crosby, Souls and Ash. I mean, you worked out some pretty pretty tight harmonies.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're intricate. They're hard to replicate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I noticed because I was checking some of the stuff out. I'm going, damn, I missed out on this on this whole episode here. So take me back. The way it all started was there was two different bands. I was in a band with. Randy
1: Seal, the drummer, and Steve Bartek, who played flute on the first album, and he was also a guitar player. And there were three other guys in our band. Chris Jay was the lead singer, and Randy Zacuto was the lead guitar player, and Fred Schwartz was the keyboard player. And we had a bunch of songs. Mainly, um, Steve Bartek and I were writing the songs, And uh, and Fred Schwartz and and Randy Secudo were writing songs together too. Randy Seal ended up going getting an audition with the Strawberry Alarm Clock, but they weren't called the Strawberry Alarm Clock. They were called the Sixpence, and they were you know the other half of what ended up being Strawberry Alarm Clock, which is Mark White on keyboards and Ed King on guitar and Lee Freeman on lead vocals. At the time, their drummer was Gene Gunnels. What ended up happening was Gene's girlfriend gave him an ultimatum because nothing was going on with their band, and they were all kind of like already out of school, either dropped out or whatever. You know, Mark had already graduated. He had already gone to Valley State College, so he was on his way. He was older than the rest of us. He was, he was 21. <laughs> the rest of us were 18. And uh, anyway, like when the Gene, his after his girlfriend gave him the ultimatum, he decided to go with the girlfriend and quit the band. Right after he played drums on the track for Incense and Peppermints, so it's him on the recording. And so the manager got wind of Randy Seal, our drummer, who was also a singer, but and he was and Randy Seal had come up from Riverside. And he had like kind of a, he was known because of, sort of the music circuit, you know, he, all the musicians, like we, that's how we got him, you know, through the, our local music store here. Anyway, he put himself out there to audition for all kinds of groups. He even auditioned for the Seeds and the Electric crows you know, other bands. And he was in this other band called Act Three that, that was a great band, but they never made and uh, they were kind of like the band The Circle, the Turn Down Day thing. And um,
0: Did you say The anyway, Circle? See the, why the, the ones that did Red Rubber Ball? Red Rubber Ball, that's what it was. Yeah, they were kind of like that. And, and so,
1: But anyway, so Randy ended up getting the gig with the, uh, uh, with the, they were called the Six Pets. Started to do some shows with them, and and, and then the broker came out and sent some peppermints. They finished up the recording, and release the record, they, but they had, like you were saying, Birdman of Alcatraz was on the flip side, and it was a, a novelty song that Mark had written with with Lee actually, I think. But I don't think Lee got credit, but I think the two of them came up with it, and that's what the band had intended. These extents they had intended for Birdman of Alcatraz because it was a novelty song, you know, like. One-eyed people eater or something, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and, and so they were trying to do one of those kind of things, and you know, get out. because before that, they had released a bunch of singles, but they were all, you know, went by the wayside. A couple of them had original songs on it. They, they couldn't get any of it going. And then the DJ in Santa Barbara, who was a friend of our, of the band's manager, the band's manager was named Bill Holmes, and ultimately he ended up ripping the band off and. He, at the time, was a go-getter, and he used to go knock on doors and get everything done, and he knew this, this jockey and Santa a barber named Johnny Fairchild, and Johnny Fairchild said, well, I think the A-side is actually incense and peppermint, not Birdman of Alcatraz. You guys are crazy. And so he started playing incense and peppermints instead of Birdman of Alcatraz, with, well, first of all, he... he like well, at this, jockey can make or break a record pretty much, just by how often they play it or what they say when they're playing it, you know. Right. But he got the, the build-up going and, and made it the the number one most requested song of the week, which was what they used to do in those days. Right. People used to call in and request the songs to be played. And so and that happened all over the country, actually, but... The incense and Peppermint started on one station, and it was in Santa Barbara, so it was called K-I-S-T. And Johnny Fairchild was the disc talking a really nice guy. Anyway, he loved the band, and the band had been playing in Santa Barbara at this place called, I think it was called Dino's Pizzeria. And I used to go up there with Randy Seal, because Randy Seal was the drummer in my band still. So Randy used to bring me up there and and to do watch their gigs and watch them play. They decided that they wanted to record a bunch of the songs that that my band had, that Steve Bartek and I wrote, and Steve, and Fred Schwartz, the keyboard player, he wrote the song, The World's on Fire. But he wrote the music, and it was called Colors on the Wall. So we went in the studio. I brought, first of all, I brought Steve, Steve Bartek and I brought all the songs over to a band rehearsal of the sixpence, but by that time They were changing their name to the Strawberry Alarm Clock, because they were on on the verge of getting a record deal, and the record company said, there's other bands called the Sixpence, you got to get rid of that. So they sat around to try to come up with a name, and they managed to come up with Strawberry Alarm Clock. There's a story, but it's not that great. But the story is, they were sitting around, Mark, the keyboard player, wanted to use Strawberry because of Strawberry Fields Forever. Right. And so he thought that was a good psychedelic sounding name and he wanted he was into, everybody at the time was like into the psychedelic scene kind of. They were sitting around in Mark's Mark's, uh, bedroom was the the rehearsal room. It was a guest house at his parents' house. And Mark had this little big Ben alarm clock and it started to make a a wacky sound like it was scraping, the hands were scraping going around at a certain point. (laughs) And everybody after Throwing out a bunch of names to go with strawberry, the alarm clock made its own little presence known, and,
0: <laughs> um,
1: and the band all kind of looked at it and said, "That's it, strawberry alarm clock." So that's how the name came about.
0: In retrospect, so, then you could it could have if they had a cuckoo clock, it could have changed the name of the band, to <laughs> strawberry exactly. cuckoo.
1: Yeah, well, they were coming up with all the other things like strawberry toilet and strawberry, you know, everything they could they could think of. But um, yeah, so the little alarm clock went off and, and that was that. And uh, anyway, so <clears throat> so that was the name of the band. So Bartek and I went to that house, that little guest house, and played them all of our songs. And they said, you know, Ed King was kind of the this decision maker in the band, him and Mark White. They decided to do all our songs and they, and they were getting this recording deal. They got the single deal. And, um, and then they said, like, we were learning the songs. I was teaching them the songs and Steve was playing flute and I was playing guitar. And then their bass player wasn't grasping the whole idea of the bass parts. And I had a couple of the bass parts already written with the song. And so I answered, why don't you just play the bass part on it? So then we go in the studio. and so I started playing bass on a bunch of the songs. Ed King, he b- played bass on a couple of the songs, too. So, you know, we've once we finished the, all the recording, the band said, why don't you be in the band? And I said, well, I'm in this other band. And Randy, the drummer, goes, so am I. And he goes, we're going to have to quit. And he goes, just quit. We got a record deal. And I'm like, oh, OK. And then my band, the other guys, were kind of pissed off. <laughs> and his, <laughs> ear tech, he was in the other band, too. And Mom said, no, you cannot had joined the strawberry alarm clock because he was 15 the rest of us were 18
0: who,
1: who was 15 bartek he his his, his mom said no
0: <laughs>
1: and um, <laughs> yes and so he was bummed out but anyway he stayed home and the, his story turned out really well because he stayed back while the band went on to success although he wrote all these songs with me, so he did get some paychecks from it and uh, and did really well. But he was staying home, and he ended up finishing his schooling and going to UCLA and getting a degree in music and everything. And, and then after you know a few years later, he ended up in the band Boingo Boingo, which. I don't know if you guys
0: out in the East Coast. Oh, I, w- I used to live in California. George. Actually, I knew Danny and Rick, his brother. They worked. Oh, okay. They both worked at the Great American for a short time. And then I also used to oh, see yeah. the Boingo Boingo out on Venice Beach a lot. They used to just play acoustically doing their yeah, shtick. Exactly. Okay. So you totally know. So, Steve. Ended up
1: in that band, and now he's Danny Elfman's orchestrator for all the movie scores Danny does. Right. And Steve was the producer and lead guitar player of Boingo Boingo for their entire career. So,
0: yeah, I, anyway, I think of myself a, a as little. sort of like Zelig or, or Forrest Gump. Like, I've been, like, in every scene in the background, like a fly on the wall. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I've always just been where things were happening. So, Oh, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> So I saw yeah, that, that Mark guy juggling chainsaws and bowling balls. <laughs> What's the guy that went on the roller skates that was out there all the time? Henry Carey or Harry? Oh, yeah. The guy that played the Hendrix, Hendrix stuff? Yeah. yeah, I saw all that stuff. And yeah. who knows, I might have met you, for all I know, somewhere along the line. Oh, so the band was, you know, we recorded all of, all of my songs.
1: And so I ended up, I did end up quitting my band and went and joined the Alarm Clock. And then Incense and Peppermint's, Started to take off, and so they first I was with them going to Johnny Fairchild's studio, and then all of a sudden Palm Springs happened, and and eventually L.A. picked up the song, and it and then it uh, there was this guy Bill Drake who owned all the stations across the United States that were CBS stations. He said, "I'm going to go with it." So he put it on like 250 stations one day. Oh. It was like, and and you know that's all you need is and then boom, it, the thing just had a life of its own, and it took off, and it was a massive hit. Uh, in the meantime, there's another side story there because two things happened. One was during the recording of the song, see, the lyrics were actually written to Incense and Peppermints by John Carter, but he had nothing to do with the band. He was just the, the band's producer's lyricist he worked because the band the producer frank slay had a publishing company and so john carter was one of his go-to writers and the incense and peppermints like when gene gunnels played drums on it it was an instrumental and the actual track that you hear on the radio was originally without vocals and it, and it was written by mark white and ed king what ended up happening was they got jacked on it the because of the manager wanted everybody's name on it, including his own, and so the producer said, "No, it's not going to happen that way. Narrow it down to two names, and you know, and then and and it's going to have John Carter and Tim Gilbert as the lyricists. Tim Gilbert, though, really didn't do anything, I don't think, and, <laughs> uh, and it was mainly John Carter's lyrics. What ended up happening was they sent the thing into copyright without Mark and Ed's name on it." So they got nothing on wow. the song, and they wrote the music, and and the thing, the whole track was already recorded and done. So not only did they write the music, it was already in the can, and they got nothing. So it's like one of those really strange cases. And Mark and Ed were told basically just to shut up. If you want to make it in the music business, this is kind of what you have to do. You know,
0: that wasn't and, uncommon And uh, There was a couple books. Hitmen and uh, Platinum Rainbow both contributed to my. St- I stopped writing or trying to write songs for two years because after reading these books and reading all like stories like that, A and R guy wanted to put his name on every record that that he mm-hmm. didn't write. You know, I said well, if that's the way it is, I'm like I, I don't want to do this.
1: Yeah, it was bad in those days. It's probably not much better now, but it's. I think it is.
0: Yeah, well, see, but the now, thing is they, now, they, they yeah, all you, you need to do is have your video go viral, and everybody knows who did what now.
1: Also, now, though, they don't have a limit as to how many names they'll put on a song. Right Now, you'll see, like, like when I vote for the Grammys, I sit here doing my voting, and I look at the list of songwriters on some of the songs, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you got like eight or ten names on right. there. You know? it's like, <laughs> you know, it took an army to write the song, and it's, some, some of the songs are like nothing. You know, and I
0: think, wow. (laughs) What, each person wrote a word? Yeah. (laughs) So let me just ask you this. Incense and Peppermint, can you remember how it felt like the very first time you heard it on the radio? Like, what'd that feel like? It was pretty remarkable.
1: I think I was on a date with some girl. and, And I was on a double date with our drummer, Randy. And these two girls were sisters. And and it came on the radio, and we were like, whoa! And they were, like, we were blown away, but they were even more blown away.
0: It kind of secured the date. (laughs) It it couldn't have hurt. uh, (laughs) No,
1: it didn't hurt. Anyway, there was one little, extra little tidbit on Incense and Peppermint. So, after John Carter came back to the band with the lyrics he wrote, they tried everybody's voice in the band to see whose voice would fit. Uh And and it was the song was since it was already recorded, it was in E and the key wasn't right for any of the singers in the alarm clock. And there was another friend of the band, Greg Munford, just hanging out in the studio because the, the manager also produced him and managed him. And they said they, they let him try it. He said, go ahead and, and give it a whirl. It was exactly, it was in his perfect key. It was right in his wheelhouse. So they figured, okay, it's it's just a demo. And he wasn't in the band. And so they kept the track with him singing it. And then it created a whole problem from there because he didn't, because the band, the uh, song started to make it and he didn't want to be in the band. He was his own artist, you know, and, um, he wanted to have a solo career. So it wasn't, (laughs) he was never going to join the band. That was that's another little side story. So the the lead singer on Intensive Aftermath was never in the band, and he did this song like in one take. Anyway, whatever three minutes or something that the song was is how long he was in the band. Oh,
0: uh, see now I did I never yeah. I for some reason I just assumed that was you singing lead. So, uh, no. So what's it? What, what's his no, name? Uh, Greg Munford. Greg Munford?
1: Huh. Yeah. And solo career never ever did take off. He had singles and stuff. But Tried to, and he's kind of like an underground thing. You know, people know who he is, but he never had any kind of great success. He, it, it would have made the band a whole different thing if he would have stayed in the band. Sure, but anyway, say love la <laughs> and so that was that's the story of Incense and Peppermint and how the whole thing started. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And and I was in at that point and rode the whole success train you know with the band and did all the tv shows and everything but i didn't play on the original record as a matter of fact it's only ed and mark and gene the drummer and gene wasn't in the band anymore either so and then they had randy seal yeah but they had so a, you went enough, through quite a few yes, personnel
0: this. changes it sounds like
1: only before everything started kind of it's like they brought me in as a songwriter because they already had a bass player gary labucho was was their bass player, and but they said, we want you in the band, and then you can play guitar and whatever else you want to do, percussion, and sometimes play bass. And I said, okay, fine. (laughs) Because they had a record deal. So it was like, cool. What happened, I was in it, and then they decided that they didn't want Gary in the band anymore, so after the first album, they fired By that time, the band was a real entity and under contract, and so he sued for breach of contract, which I ended up getting caught up in their, their lawsuit too. <laughs> so and Randy Seal became the drummer. He was the cute guy in the band, and so the manager wanted him to be the lead singer, and in lip sync, incense and peppermints on all the TV shows oh, man. instead of have the lead because we had a The you know Lee Freeman was the lead singer in the band, but Randy had all the songs of mine for all appearances.
0: Yeah, he wanted the cute guy lip sync that
1: yeah that's what they did and so neither one of them sang the song and both of them could sing it it's just that they wanted randy to be the guy and and at that point randy was singing all these other songs that i had brought to the band so he was essentially becoming the lead singer and lee was just being the rhythm guitar player and singer too but and not until the second album did lee start to sing lead on a bunch of things But the second single came out too soon. The song Tomorrow was written by Mark Weitz and Ed King, and just like Incense and Peppermints" was, but they got no credit on Incense. And So the manager felt bad for what he caused. And so before the second album was even recorded, he had the band go in and record the song that Mark and Ed wrote called Tomorrow and release it as a single. And it wasn't on the first album, and the second album wasn't going to come out for three more months or four months. And so they really blew it there. And and but the song wrote on the coattails of "Incense and Peppermints" and got to number twenty-three on Billboard, which is like a hit record, you know. Right. And but it could have. I thought it could have gone higher if everything was correct. I also thought that they should have pulled more of the songs from the first album to be singles. After incense and peppermint, but they didn't. The first album was number eleven in the country.
0: So essentially, they sort of like relegated you to being sort of like one hit wonders when you probably could have had several more hits after that.
1: yeah, yeah, and it was we were never really a one hit wonder because the you know the the album was number eleven. The single was number one, and then the follow up single was number twenty three, right. So there's like three hits right there in a row. but the second album, didn't chart. It didn't even hit the charts because they, the, the way that they screwed the whole thing up. That was the manager, and he was an idiot. Where's you know? he now? Is he? He was the guy that was responsible for making it all happen, and then he blew it all. He messed it all up.
0: Is he still around? Or I think he passed away last year. Uh. That was the rumor. We we lost touch with
1: him, but and somebody said you know he had this. Other, he started a record company called A Karma. And it was in, out of Italy. It, it should have been bad. A
0: karma, yeah, or just but, bad um, karma. B karma, the B, yeah. were bad. Yeah, yeah, B karma. And so, but yeah. So anyway,
1: he and he continued ripping people off all all the time, and he ended up releasing all of the the sixpence singles on A Karma.
0: You, you were saying they brought you in as a songwriter, so. Were you writing songs for other other groups or other people too or do just, you continue no, to No,
1: just my me me and Steve Bartek lived next door to each other and we wrote songs every day. Ah. And so yeah, so we had and we were writing them for our own amusement and then the band I was in was doing some of them. So and did you ever um, go out
0: like as an acoustic duo or do open mics or any of that kind of stuff?
1: No. No, cuz I played bass and Steve played flute. And mostly what we would do, like if we were playing, like his brother played jazz guitar and his other friend of ours played drums. So we would do like jazz instrumentals and, you know, standards and stuff just for our own amusement because <laughs> nobody would really pay us. You know? <laughs> and, and then and, but then we kept writing. songs. the truth of it was we were like almost incapable of learning the top 40. And, um, and making it sound like anything. Although I ended up in a band that did the top 40 and, and, but they had their own guitar player and singer and he, he managed to sing all the, the top 40 songs and play them. But me and Steve and, and the rest of us just didn't like doing it, I guess. We just, we just didn't function that way. But when we wrote our own songs, we functioned perfectly well. And we would design all the harmonies and, And the alarm clock. When when we brought songs like "Rainy Day Mushroom Pillow," for instance, was a a song that Steve and I wrote.
0: Yeah,
1: we had already put built in the harmonies and everything else. But the the alarm clock had a vocal coach, and he used to write harmony parts for the band. and And a lot of his stuff was like over the top, but they would get us to sing it all, and and it was. Almost like we used to liken it to the Andrew sisters. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was, it, but yeah, yeah, And it was kind of funny. But and then one day the Beach Boys came to one of our recording sessions and they said, you know, we really like you guys and we want you to tour with us. We, we think your album is great. And we love all the harmony. And we were kind of blown away. We we're like, wow, the Beach Boys. And he said, yeah, we have two tours we want you to do with us. One is going to be our. Thanksgiving tour uh, and then in 1967 and then in 1968 we want you to do our Easter tour and both tours will be with the Buffalo Springfield and Strawberry Alarm Clock and the Beach Boys and we were like blown away this was like as big as it could be
0: oh yeah because
1: they're Beatles that would Beatles, be on anybody's bucket list the, yeah like the Beatles and the Stones weren't touring at the time <laughs> so this was like the besides the who who we also played with this was like the biggest thing that you could be with it was exciting
0: i had one observation before i forget that when i listen to your stuff i i don't know how you know how much you discuss things with your keyboard player but i couldn't help but notice like some of the the feel was like similar to um ray manzarek of the doors that did they go to like the same yeah. teacher or influence each other somehow? Because I, I definitely heard some, that Doris influence in the keyboards.
1: Yeah, you know what that is? Both of them were classically trained uh, on, key, on piano. And they switched over to organ. And neither one of them could play the Jimmy Smith kind of style of organ, oh. which was what our keyboard player in in the band I came out of—that was what he did. He played like Jimmy Smith, right? And you know, and those guys couldn't function like that as a you know that kind of. And so they brought in what they knew, you know, which was the classical training. And they're both similar like that, but they didn't get. It from each other. It just—it's just the way it comes out when you when you put a farfisa organ right in and the I, hands of a classical trained musician.
0: Right. And I so, was a huge fan yeah. of the. I love the sound of the farfisa. As a matter of fact, yeah. Uh, uh, did you Did you know Andy Kahn of the Turtles? Yeah. He he had an all instrumental album out. He was telling me when he was younger, called Johnny Farfisa, which <laughs> I, I found to be interesting. But yeah, That's I love funny. the farfisa sound. I think that's part of what gives yeah. uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock that signature.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the way Mark did it, it was,
0: you know, he he would.
1: It was sort of like a, like my songs became like a coloring book for him, and he would kind of color them in with his organ parts. It was really neat. That, that's and, a great um,
0: way of describing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's what it was too. Literally, his coloring book. See, now, Ed King's guitar playing, he was actually from the more blues style and kind of rock and blues and everything, but he loved Robbie Krieger of The Doors. So he also had something to do with making it sound like The Doors. When I first got in The Alarm Clock, part of the set were Doors songs, and they they did Light My fire.
0: See now you're making me feel better that I that I was able to pick up on that.
1: You did. <laughs> and Ed King later, you know, like Robbie Krieger's a friend of mine, but Ed when I know Ed when he met him, I I'm sure he told him that you know, you're like one of my greatest influences because <laughs> he was. Robbie Krieger was a huge influence on Ed. But then Ed kind of went away from that, went more into not using fuzz tones or any kind of pedals he he just started to play straight sounding guitar and he ended up in leonard skinnard which came about because leonard skinnard was the opening act for the alarm clock on like two different tours and so they became friends and they told and and ed and the singer from skinnard they got along great they used to sit around and play on the days off or, or whatever at night and um they they liked the same kind of stuff and so Ronnie Van Zant told Ed, "If the alarm clock ever breaks up, call us." And then that's what ended up happening. The alarm clock ended up breaking up. Ed got in touch with Ronnie Van Zant and drove out to wherever he went to—I think Jacksonville or something, Florida—and uh, hooked up with them. And because they're ba- they—they said, "Oh, good, you know, our bass player. Do you want to play bass?" And Ed said, "Sure." So that's what ended up happening. Ed played bass on the first Leonard Skinner album. He played bass on Freebird. <laughs> really? Yeah. Sam. Yeah. And then he ended up, you know, by the second album, they said, because their bass player wanted to get back in the band. And so by the second album, they said, Ed, Leon's coming back in the band. Uh, he, he quit for the similar reason as Gene Gunnels, our drummer with the alarm clock. Leon Wilkerson's girlfriend or wife, whatever it was, wanted him to work for her dad's ice cream company. And so he went and did that and he quit the band and then the band became successful. So he wanted to get back in. Funny thing is, is that Randy Seal and I quit the alarm clock after the after we finished recording the third album because the the manager was so crooked. And then we started finding out what he was doing And so the band was going to fire the manager. But then at the last minute, the manager said he had cancer and only six months to live. And Mark and Ed and Lee didn't want to fire him. And so Randy and I quit. And when we quit, they called Gene Gunnels and got Gene Gunnels back in the band as their drummer. So he came back in and did the fourth album, Good Morning Starshine album. But anyway, when Leonard Skinner said, you know, Leon Wilkerson is coming back into the band, ed thought he was out of a gig but they said no 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 we want you to play guitar so ed moved over to guitar from bass and on the second album it's ed playing lead guitar like on sweet home alabama ed plays both of those guitar solos and he co-wrote the
0: song that's amazing all you guys are like multi-instrumentalists you weren't relegated to just one instrument so that that had to help a lot
1: yeah i used to have to i used to have to play guitar and percussion and mandolin and bass and i was forced into it i used to fake flute because steve couldn't be in the band so he had flute parts on a couple of the songs that i used to like if we did rainy day mushroom pillow or world's on fire they used to have me fake like i was playing flute
0: (laughs) you know (laughs) i was listening the other day i was listening on youtube to um was a curse of the witch
1: oh yeah curse of the witches
0: yeah, I'm listening to that. I'm thinking, what the actual F? That That's a very yeah. interesting song. It's a weird did, song. Did you I write that? So what happened? Well, yes, I wrote the music to it. Randy
1: Seal wrote the lyrics to it, but it was originally an idea that Steve Bartek had, but by that time, Steve wasn't on tour with us. And Steve had this song that started 21 years ago. And, and so... Randy and and Steve's song, I think, might have even been called "Curse of the Witches" or something. But Randy really liked the idea of it, and then uh, and I was working on this instrumental, which was the music for it, and he said, "Can I put the my own lyrics?" using the idea of Steve's thing of, you know, The Curse of the Witches. Yeah. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> he was the guy that was going to sing it, so right. he, it it makes it easy that way if the lyricist is going to sing it also, so they can come up with their own
0: rhythm of the... Well, it's a great the, story, It's uh, you know, very intriguing, and, and your music matches it. Per- I, I loved it. I, I'm like, wh- why hadn't I never heard this before? <laughs> yeah.
1: I, it was too long, because in those days... You would never get airplay off of a That's
0: thing true. longer than
1: three minutes, except for the Doors with Light Night Fire.
0: Right. But that means, was, yeah, but that was like a, know, a jam, and the, yeah, they called it the album version.
1: Yeah, exactly. We did the same thing with the Worlds on Fire. We had a, a, a long version and a short version.
0: Did you perform Curse of the Witches on, on tour
1: live? Never, no.
0: Never did, huh?
1: No, because Ed King hated it. Ed and Mark hated it. <laughs> And so they didn't want to do it. But it had some really neat things about it. So we never did it. And oh, wow. most of the time, the sets, like when we were playing, when we were on tour, we had to do like a half hour to maybe 45 minute sets. And all the shows were like mixed up with all different kinds of acts. Yeah. Like <laughs> we played with Otis Redding. <laughs> you know, it's like, and those things, they were like cavalcade of stars kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you do. You, you know, do like were, a lot were, of oldies uh, reunion shows and stuff. Yeah, where the Where are they now tour?
1: Oh yeah, they do it again. Yeah, they put a whole bunch of bands, and each band comes out and does fifteen minutes or something.
0: Yeah, did you like do? Did you tour Europe or Japan or any any of those places back in the day?
1: Well, we were we were set up to do that because we were with the William Morris agency, and then the band got busted in Peoria, Illinois when that happened, and it, it, we, we were framed, what, what ended up happening was the things that we were just about to embark on got canceled. Like, we had a tour that was supposed to be like France and Germany, and, and it was also supposed to include Japan. And then we had uh, the Dick Cavett show. I forget what else. There was a couple of other TV shows. That immediately were canceled as soon as we got busted. What, what you know, were you
0: busted for? What, that had to be devastating.
1: It was. They said the strawberry, astrolog- like the headlines in the paper. This is an interesting bit. My mom was on her way to work in her car and she heard seven members of the Strawberry Alarm Clock rock group have been arrested in a narcotics raid. And she, my mom just started crying and turned her car around and went
0: home. Oh. Uh, and, and, you know,
1: she, and, and then, you know, in those, you couldn't get it un, you couldn't unring the bell, so to speak.
0: Right. And, yeah, and you couldn't go you know, on your phone and, and go on the internet and see what actually happened. Right. There was nothing you had to you wait, do. So she had to wait forever to get the yeah. whole story. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. There was like a couple of day, you know, thing. And then they, so the, like, the next day, all the charges were dropped, and and it was illegal search and seizure. And they had planted a bag of pots in Mark White's room. The whole thing was a joke. And then we got a rebuttal in the paper, but it was like a little blip. Two days later, they put this little. It, Why would somebody be so the-
0: so hell bent on ruining your lives? Yeah, here they destroy the career and. It just really messed everything up. That's an understatement.
1: Yeah, that was the beginning of the end.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, we could just jump, like, until now. Things are going a little better these days, I take it, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so we got together (laughs) different times, like over – like, in in around 74, um, me and Randy Seal and Steve Bartek got together and did – because the uh, you know Ed was already on tour with Skinner, and so nobody was doing the alarm clock, and so we decided to do it, and we did. Um, we played at the the thing, the California Jam. I'm sure you remember that. Yeah. In in uh, the Ontario Motor Speedway, mm-hmm. we played that show with this guy called Ben Balloon, <laughs> and it and it was he had this gigantic locking balloon and he would go up in the balloon with a keyboard and a bullhorn and we would be on the ground on a platform on a stage and do the uh, the whole set like that right (laughs) anyway we were on between emerson lake and palmer and deep purple and he's singing and playing piano up there yeah he had a fender road it was the craziest thing anyway so that was one of the reincarnations of the band and then it ended up dying, but we had, you know, like we had management, we were, did photos with all, we were all ready to go. And then uh, from there, fast forward to like 1982, and we ended up, me and Lee Freeman and and Randy Seal and Mark White got together with Gene Gunnels. At first it first, was not with Randy Seal, it was with Gene Gunnels. And we did a, a couple of shows in Santa Monica and uh, there was a place called the music machines. And that place had been advertising strawberry alarm clock coming soon. And so we had called them and said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and who, who do you, and then he the guy, the club owner goes, Oh, I knew you guys was contacting because I'm just trying to find you. <laughs> so would you play? And so we said, okay, we did that show. And then Mark did Mark decided again that he didn't want to do it because he had his own business by that time of doing tropical fish. he said, no, I I don't want to go because we had a show come up at Harris in Lake Tahoe that was going to be a couple of weeks. And so he said, "Um, no, I don't want to do that. I I just I have I have my business. I I can't do that. He quit. And so uh, another friend of ours, Pete Wassner, played keyboards. And another friend of ours, James Hara, played guitar. And Randy Seal came back and played drums because Gene also didn't want to do it. Anyway, we did that show, and it was pretty successful. Then that, that was 82. That like that band did a couple of other things. It ended up disposing of itself. Self-destruction. <laughs> Self-destruction. Self-destruct. And, um, yeah. Like in, in 1984, okay. we ended up getting together with another guitar player named... Um, uh, John Walmsley, and he he used to be on the Waltons.
0: Well, I knew I knew that
1: name. The yeah, yeah, and so and he was a friend of mine. And so he said, "Yeah, I would love to do it." Did a bunch of stuff. We toured with him. We did a, a TV show with Frankie Avalon and Connie Stevens, and we did a. It was filmed in um, Florida. No, oh, what was that thing? It was like like a Spring Break reunion. It was called. We had. Pretty good success with it, and then um, he ended up. John Longley ended up getting the gig with Richard Marx, so he left. And and by the way, James Hara, the first guitar player, got the gig playing for Madonna. So he had. That's why he left. <laughs> but we lose. We get good guitar players, but the result is they get good gigs eventually.
0: <laughs> do, you, do you have but, any um, interest, uh, like from? uh current movies or, or documentaries and whatnot that want, want to license incense and yeah. peppermints. Cause a lot of that kind of stuff is making a comeback now, I think.
1: Yeah. What we have done is so in 2017, we went in the studio um, and um, recorded an exact version of incense and peppermints. And we had Ed King, Ed King passed away in 2018. He played on this, track it was ed and we got the original lead singer greg munford
0: oh really and everybody After yeah all this the time, greg's back in the picture
1: yeah and um we got everybody to do you know their exact part it was produced by a guy named ken Williams. it was his idea anyway the concept of it was that we would own our own licensing that's what we've done we have it with a uh, company that does just that the they try to um, place your song in movies. And so it's because it's an exact replica of Incense and Peppermint, it, the idea is you know, somebody would, would use it in a TV or a film, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Although it kept happening using the original song, like in Austin Powers and some other things, it kept popping up. And, and we don't because we don't own the licensing rights to it, we would never
0: get anything out of it. That's why we did it. Uh, well, that so, makes sense. Now, so you get get a little bit uh, on the back end. You know what I love about incense peppermints. Yeah. It, it's almost like two, like a, sort of like the same thing like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. It, it's got one groove in the beginning, and then all of a sudden it goes into that sha la Like that's just so oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that yeah. did was it originally written that way, or did you did you add that later? How did that come about?
1: You know what. I'm pretty sure that was how it was written, but I think that the, yeah. the shalalas laws were actually, I think, Randy Seals' idea. But the music to it was Mark.
0: It was just ingenious to tag that on the end, though. I mean, I, th- th- that there's two things that make that song: the so shalalas at the end, and the hi hat part where it just goes. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. yeah. That's Gene. And I mean, that, those, those were yeah, so, yeah, and
1: so guess what happens? Like, fast forward to after we do a bunch of incarnations of the band. Then in, uh, in 2007, Roger Ebert, the film critic, his people contact me, and they say, we want the original Strawberry Alarm Clock to close Roger Ebert's film festival. It was also in Illinois. It was in Champaign, Illinois. It's a, you know, the University of Champaign is like a film school kind of a thing. That's where Roger Ebert came from. They said, would you be willing to put the original band back together? And I said, yeah, it would take some doing. And they said, okay, well, look at it this way. Whatever it takes, do it. And we'll take care of everything. And I said, whoa, okay. So in 2007, I contacted Ed King. And also Lee Freeman and Gene Giles and Mark Whites and all of us went ahead and pulled the show together. We also had another friend of mine who was in the band after I left. His name is Paul Marshall. He had written a couple of songs for the movie Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Right. That movie was, the screenwriter on it was Roger Ebert. And so that's why he wanted... The alarm clock. He had written Strawberry Alarm Clock into the script. Uh
0: Uh-huh. The plot thickens.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I paid the Strawberry Alarm Clock $4,000 to play at my private party. You know, there was all these funny lines in the movie that people quote. The movie became like a cult favorite, especially here in L.A. And we did it. We went there. It's called the Overlooked Film Festival. We ended up doing a whole set with all the original guys.
0: It, it, as long as it didn't take place at the Overlook Hotel, it was probably very successful.
1: What's that? The Overlook Film, Film
0: Festival? And I was did, just saying, as long yeah, as it didn't did, take place at the Overlook Hotel, which was, you know, oh, the hotel in The Shining.
1: Yeah, The Shining. Is that from The Shining? Yeah. yeah
0: I was just kind of making a little play on words. <laughs> that
1: would have been a good idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we did that show,
1: and it it brought the band back together. So ever since 2007... We've been without a manager and still playing. Uh, like, Because in 2007, we ended up playing all year, literally all year, all the time. I was still selling cars. We even did a movie with all of us. It's called Love In, a uh-huh. celebration of the 60s with Ben Vereen and a bunch of people, the Vanilla Fudge. and oh, wow. And Peter and Gordon. He yeah, had a bunch of people in it. We were all of us filmed the movie live, and we were all together for
0: like, I don't know, 10 days or something while we did it. Was it a concert movie, or it was like a movie with a...
1: No, it was a concert, and and it was uh, filmed at at this uh, theater in San Diego. But the movie's out there. It's it's like on... You can
0: Google it. Netflix, maybe? Netflix or Hulu? It's,
1: It's called Love In, A Musical Celebration.
0: A Musical Celebration. All right cuz if I can find any links to it I'll put that in the show notes for the podcast so other people can yeah. track that down Speaking of which um where can people do you have uh was it uh strawberryalarmclock.com or the strawberry alarm Yes it's strawberryalarmclock.com Do you plan on playing live anywhere anymore or are you just kind of just li- li- Yeah no we still do we play we play we've been playing
1: every year and yeah whiskey gogo July eleventh we play there twice a year and there's another club here in l a called the called bogies, and we play there twice a year. Do you
0: have any dates at the bogies are or offhand or no uh
1: no, we just played there and in uh, November the end of November, so we try to separate them, so I don't know it'll be it'll be after the it could be in June or
0: something it might be before okay bogies to be announced whiskey go go July eleventh yeah. You know, there's something to doing things acoustically to make them totally different. There might be a, a way of doing incense and peppermint acoustically and still keep the integrity of the song intact.
1: About, I don't know, two years ago, we did a, we did a show here at, at a place called The Guitar Merchant, and we did it unplugged. It was our one and only time doing that. And Mark played a grand piano, and... Our guitar players Howie Anderson and Steve Bartek both played acoustic guitars. I played an acoustic bass. The drummers are obviously acoustic, right? And it was great. We, you know, so it, it did, was really cool. Did that get recorded? Um, not per se. I think there, I think it kind of did get recorded, but I think I don't know what ever happened to it's not the recording of it. Like not the,
0: available
1: the, to the I don't know the sound guy. Might have recorded it for and uh, I know other people were recording things in the audience back then. I remember somebody playing me something, and I thought, "Oh, that's great!" You know, it's like cool. It might have even been incense and peppermints.
0: Yeah, well, I hope that but, some. I hope that gets out there somehow through you guys. I don't mean I don't yeah, mean well, bootlegged. I mean I hope yeah. whoever recorded that. Uh, Figures out a way to uh, you know get that out to the general public because that sounds very intriguing because you are, you're you a psychedelic know, band and just it's it's almost like a um, an oxymor it's almost like an, oh, oxymoron an oxymoron to have an acoustic version of a psychedelic song.
1: We have been talking about doing it again, and every time we get a gig coming up, I know our Mark, the keyboard player, goes, "I want to do it. Let's do it an, an unplugged. Let's do it unplugged." And I'm like, "Well." That place, neither of the two places that we play all the time, Bogies and the Whiskey, neither one of them have an acoustic piano, and we're not bringing one. So,
0: <laughs> find a place that has one and book a gig there because I, I think yeah. that'd be cooler than. Sh- yeah, that's a good idea. I I guess I could wrap it up now. It was great talking to you. Well, thanks. And yeah, uh, it was
1: fun talking to you too. I hope I didn't blab too much. There's
0: a, there's no such thing as too much. Yeah, the funny thing
1: is, it's such a meandering story that once you start telling any part of it, you kind of have to bring in all the little factions that contribute to the next part of it. It's like, it's sort of the never ending story. In a
0: yeah. But well, I think the, the it, confusing part, I think, is the the so many people that have been in and out of the band. And every time you say another name, I'm going, nobody's ever going to remember this.
1: Well, you know, what's funny is now, Nowadays, ever since 2007, we've had both drummers, Randy Seal and Gene Gunnels. They're both in the band. And what it allows us to do is what we originally did. Like, see, Randy used to go and play the vibraphone. Ah. He'd come up off of the drums and play vibes back in the 60s. And so we get to do that now because we have Gene that can hold the drums down. Used to be Lee Freeman used to go back and while randy was playing lee would would grab one drumstick and start hitting the ride cymbal and one foot down on a bass drum or whatever and, and then he and randy would slide out from under the drums and go down to the vibes. now we have gene the other original drummer get, you know to, to do stuff and and we we have new songs and stuff that we do now we write together still it's a lot of fun you know what what you might want to check out we 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 did another album in 2012 called Wake Up Where You Are. Steve Bartek produced it at his studio. He's got a state-of-the-art recording studio, and it's all of us. And then we kept getting asked to do these other little bits. Like we got asked to do a theme song for a documentary uh, uh, called World Citizen. This guy, Gary Davis, who has uh, a world citizenship, you know, can, can go into any country with his one, you know, citizen card, you know, right, passport, and and so uh, we have that song which was just written for that, so that's on the album. It's called World Citizen, and then there was a couple of other ones. One of us, one was a tribute to Sky Saxon. He, he passed away while we were doing the album, and um, so his wife asked us to to record Mister Farmer. Yeah, as a tribute to The Seeds, it's for an album that was going to raise money for something or other. But that album never came out. It's still supposed to come out. It has Billy Corrigan and a bunch of other people on it. but um, And we did Mr. Farmer, which we ended up putting it on this album that we put out, along with some of the old songs and some other of the new songs. and So it's, it's kind of a mixed up thing as far as albums go. But um, but it is. We did release it. It came out in 2012. It's definitely worth
0: checking out. You'll you'll see. Uh, Wake up where you where are. Where you are. Wake up where you are, Mr. Farmer. Who's it about? Um, what, Mr. Farmer? Yeah, that's a song by The Seeds. So
1: it was Sky Saxon and The Seeds. And so it was a tribute.
0: Gotcha. All right. I like that title. Wake up where you are. Yeah, just in case it's you plan of, to wake um, up somewhere it's our, else.
1: Yeah, it's our guitar player Howie Anderson wrote the wrote a song called "Wake Up Where You Are." It's called "Wake Up," and he's been with us since 1987. And the rest of the band all played on the first album. Wow! Oh, you know what? On I just I'm looking at
0: Wikipedia. Actually, I just look at, looking at this now. They have a timeline with the name of everybody and the period that they were in the band, and you can see the gaps. Like for instance. You were there from the 60s up until 70, then you left for a while, came back in 75, then left for a while, then you were from 80-something up until now. Yeah. So you left twice. Gene Gunnels. Did you ever get your names mixed up, you and Gene? Because he he was Gunnels and you are Bunnell. Oh, yeah. You
1: know what they did? So after I quit the band, after the third album, the band... um, did the fourth album called Good Morning Starshine, and, and on that album, they all decided to put all their names on all the songs, and so and it, you know that everybody shared equal. And well, instead <laughs> of Gene Gunnels, they put George bunnell Oh. You know, because it just had last names, and they thought they thought Gunnels must have been bunnell Right. So they put my name on all the songs, but I didn't get any. Did you
0: ever see the movie Brazil? I
1: don't think
0: so. With Robert De Niro, uh, so the the guy's name was Tuttle. The government mistook Mister Tuttle for Mister Buttle, and <laughs> and Tuttle, the guy who they were after, was uh, like a, this rogue air conditioner repairman. You see, like if your air conditioner breaks, the government has to repair it. This took place in like a <laughs> uh, you know like a futuristic world. So this guy Buttle, who worked as a like a mild manner accountant, all of a sudden these government people come down through his roof and they abduct him and they separate him from his family. Nah. And Tuttle, who's Robert De Niro, who's this rogue air conditioner repairman, is like uh, in and out, clandestine, repairing air conditioners on the sly and then disappearing into the night. I'm going to have to check that out. It, it was made by one it. of the Monty Python <laughs> guys. I'm going to check it out. <laughs> All right, George. Well, it's great talking to you, and I'll I'll get back in touch with you like uh, after um I get around to editing this, and I'm, I'm gonna go listen to send yeah, some peppermints you. while I while I eat a cookie. All right, very good. Go check out our album. I'm going to. You know, in headphones. You got it. I'll be sure to use headphones. Thank you, George bunnell Lots to digest from this episode, huh? Listen. If you scroll all the way down the show notes page, below the full transcript, you'll find the comment section. So I'm asking, please leave me your comments and suggestions, or send me an email to Philly at gmail.com. I love to hear from you, and I answer everyone personally. Also, please share with your friends and subscribe at no cost through Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app happens to be. You can also listen directly from the website at Warriors.com. Where, if you'd like to contribute, there is a tip jar where you can send a buck or two directly through PayPal. Every little bit helps. Right now, I could use a little gas money. You know why? Because I'm going for a drive.